Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs for this episode, How to Help Those with Severe Apraxia Speak with the Teaching of Talking Method. Before we get started, here are some logistics. As a reminder, for this live episode to get live CEUs, you must log into your speechtherapypd.com account and complete the entire course content by the end of the day today. For this live podcast, we welcome audience questions. Please type all questions in the chat box and our guest will answer questions at the end of the podcast. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of the podcast, Keys for SLPs, and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Mark Ittleman receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. He has authored two books and developed a video training course. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Now here's a little bit about our guest today, Mark Ittleman, MSCCC SLP. Mark has been a speech-language pathologist for over five decades. He served in the public schools in Florida and had a private practice in Lakeland and Winter Haven, Florida for nearly 20 years. He has specialized in profound speech and language difficulties in children and adults. His experience led him to, to develop the teaching of talking method. Mark has written two books, one on the diagnosis and treatment of aphasia, and one on the diagnosis and treatment of apraxia. He has also developed a video training course for therapists and caregivers working with patients with aphasia. Mark is a patient advocate and has a love for the field of speech language pathology. He has an extraordinary zeal for teaching therapists, caregivers, parents, and spouses speech and language stimulation methods for apraxia and aphasia, both nationally and internationally. Peers have referred to Mark as, and I love this, 
the speech language pathologist who can make a rock talk. Currently, he treats patients online through video mentoring and conferencing. He actually does therapy with two people during speech therapy visits, the person with aphasia or apraxia and the caregiver. Mark highlights how caregivers can learn expert methods and effectively apply them at home to facilitate more speaking opportunities and carryover. Welcome, Mark. We are so pleased to have you join us here at Keys for SLPs to talk about helping those with severe apraxia speak with the teaching of talking method. Well, thank you very much, Mary Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I thank Yumi, who's with us, I believe, and yourself for inviting me today. We are so happy that you're here. So before we dive in about the method, let's talk about what apraxia is. Okay, we're going to get into the real meat, the real kind of nitty gritty of apraxia and apraxia therapy. And basically, apraxia deals with the motor of speech. And we know that the motor of speech is responsible for moving the tongue, moving the tongue into various different postures within the mouth. It's responsible for moving the lips, moving the throat. So we're just talking right here about the motor speech mechanism because it's the motor speech mechanism that is responsible for the formulation of all the sounds of speech, which include the vowels and the diphthongs and all the, 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 fine, the bilabials, the lingual alveolar, you know, all of the sounds. And so the motor speech mechanism must move accurately. If it doesn't move accurately, we don't have any clarity in speaking. So this is about specifically diving into the motor speech mechanism and the phonemes of speech. And basically, I want you to imagine that that you've forgotten how to make the sounds of speech. I want everybody right now to just think about that. Think about what it would be like if you've forgotten you know, how to say words. Your tongue didn't know what to do. Your lips didn't know what to do. Okay, and that's what happens with what I think when I imagine what's happening when I'm working across from somebody. I know that they don't have a strategy. They don't know what to do with their lips, their tongue or the other speech mechanisms. They just don't know what to do. So what we have to do is sort of like we're we're, we're like uh, dancing teachers. We have to teach them how to dance. We have to teach them how to make the moves. So we we have to teach them how to make the moves for all of the speech sounds so that when they put the speech sounds together, which comes a little bit later, then we get clarity of speaking. Mark, I love your analogy, but I have two left feet, so I'd be scared here. (laughs) But you know something? I'm a, a much better speech language pathologist than a dancer. Well, you know, well, that's what people tell me with apraxia. But I, I'll bet you, you know, and I'm a dancer too, okay? And I'll bet you dimes to dollars that if we spent a couple of dancing lessons that I could have you dancing and, and, and everybody who knows you would be extremely surprised <laughs> because you don't have the strategy of the moves. 
that's why that's why you don't know you, you don't know the strategy of the moves. And that's the same thing that happens with apraxia. They okay. don't know the moves. OK, so you're, you're we're, we're all dancing teachers and we're going to teach them the moves. Yes. Okay. okay. So you developed the teaching of talking method. Can you tell us about your experience that led you to develop this method specifically? Okay. The experience was that, you know, I, I've worked with hundreds of people who have aphasia. And when I evaluate them, there are a number of people who cannot say words. There are a number of people who cannot imitate words. So what do you do with them? So what many people in the field do with them is if, if they can't say a single word and the clinician says, say yes, and they can't do it, and they, or, and they say, or say no, and they can't do it, or say water, and they can't do it, then they go, huh, this person cannot even say a word. Well, maybe they start to say, well, let's see how they do with vowels. And if they can't imitate a vowel, then they say, okay, well, that's just it. We have to move on. Let's give them an AAC device. This person is never going to talk again. Now, doctors do that all day long. Neurologists do that. And many speech pathologists do that also. But that has no bearing. I'm going to show everybody tonight how, you know, if you break speech down into the simplest of forms, in most cases, you can teach people how to produce the vowels, produce the consonants or the phonemes of speech, but it's a very systematic, very step-by-step -step process. Okay. And you're saying what, what you said about therapists or doctors giving up on the patients. You're yeah. saying that because you have had many, many clients who have come several years post-stroke or, or, you know, post-incident, and they're not talking at all. And yeah, when they come, they're not talking, and they're saying that everybody gave up on them. All right? And so the reason why I developed this method is because when evaluating these people who usually had aphasia and apraxia, okay, I knew that I could never get them to say a single word if they had apraxia. And I wanted them talking. And that's why they came to see me. They mm -hmm. want to talk. They don't want an AAC device. They don't want flashcards. They don't want, you know, all that other stuff. They want to talk. Okay. So we, we had to say, well, that's what we have to do then. Because people like Annie Sullivan and many, many people have learned to speak who are deaf. You know, Annie Sullivan was a great teacher of the deaf. And she worked with Helen Keller. Imagine that, Helen Keller. She can't see, she can't hear, but yet she learned how to speak again. Nobody gave up on her. And Annie Sullivan, one of the things that she, she did was she taught Helen how to speak using the motokinesthetic method, which we're going to get to a little while down the road. So they came with a request. And we wanted to make sure that we satisfied that request. So we had to break speech down to the simplest of forms in order to teach them how to start saying the sounds and, and putting words back together again. Okay, thank you. Okay, how does your approach to apraxia therapy vary according to the severity of apraxia? So whether it's severe, moderate, mild, how does your approach vary? Well, 
it follows basic fundamental principles of apraxia therapy. And they include, number one, you have to model for them what you want, okay? Whether or not they're profound or whether or not they're, whatever level they are, you still have to model either a sound or a word for them so they can repeat it, okay? You also have to have them mirror you. In other words, our patients with apraxia, basically, we're sitting about three feet away from them, eyeball to eyeball, okay? And they have to move their tongues. They have to move their lips. They have to move their mouth in the same way at the same time as we do. That's called modeling. That's saying the sound, showing them how to say it, and mirroring, having them say it or make the movement at the same time as we do. And then when it comes to the caregiver, we have to do the same thing with the caregiver. We have to show the caregiver what we want her to do with the child or adult at home. So we demonstrate it, and that's called modeling. And then I want them to mirror what I do, so I make sure that they're doing exactly what I'm doing. And then the patient is doing exactly what I'm doing. And the patient is doing exactly what the caregiver is doing. So we do what we call a round robin. That means I'll, I'll teach a particular maneuver to the individual. And then I'll say, okay, Mary, mom, I want you to do the same thing that I just did. Now, remember, you want to first model the sound. You want to show them the exact position that you want, and you want to say it so that they can hear it and understand it. So, so basically it's doing speech therapy with two people, okay? Teach, teaching the caregiver expert methods to teach the individual with apraxia. And it always works because I would never have a caregiver do something that we didn't see was working. Okay. So if I do something with an individual, I know they can do it, okay? So if I know they can do it, then heck, then I can have the caregiver do it, and she'll be successful because she's motivated. There's nobody who's more motivated to help a person talk than the caregiver. Sometimes even more motivated than, than, than we are sometimes, you know? So allowing patient's wife or whatever to go to Walmart during speech therapy in my book is a sin and I won't allow it because if they come to me and they want to speak again, that caregiver, in my estimation, needs to be just as competent as I am with what we're doing with the individual. Okay. Now let's say there is a caregiver, but the person is pretty high functioning with ADLs at home and they're able to be at home by themselves. And so that caregiver is at work. Would you, would you still work with that client? Yes. And I would still do the, the, the same type of method. So if let's say it was a profound aphasia or apraxia, I would want to make sure that they could first Mimic the gestures of all the vowels with no voice. Okay. Once they could do, once they can mimic 
a gesture or a posture of a vowel with no with no voice, then we have them do it with voice. Okay, so we record and with each one of my sessions that I do online, we record the whole visit. And then we send that patient the link to that videotape that I did with them. Okay, so I have a guy right now and and he uploads each session and practices the material that was covered in that visit. So the caregiver in that situation, since she's at work, okay, can also watch and become adept with what we've done. Because I make it very easy. I, I cover it very slowly and very thoroughly so that anybody can learn it, even somebody without even a high school education. I, I trained a CNA who didn't even have a high school education. And I put her up against any, ther any therapist for apraxia in the country. I put wow. her up against them. Wow. Wow. Did you encourage her to maybe consider the, the field of speech language pathology because she was so good? Yeah. She loved what she was doing and she wanted to stay what she was doing. And she worked in a speech program that we started. And she's still there and she's oh, still great. carrying through with what we taught her years ago, 10 years ago. Well, that's great. Okay. So the moto kinesthetic approach. Okay. So there, there are a lot of folks with apraxia that you're going to run into that are going to be very difficult, seemingly difficult. They're all easy. They're all relatively easy. If you know what you're doing, <laughs> it's like <laughs> anything else, you know, yeah. even dancing, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so with the motor kinesthetic approach, there are just some people who are just like really uncoordinated. Now, I've danced with a number of girls or, or women or partners who are un uncoordinated, but you have to teach them. I have to move them around the floor. And a lot of times dancing with some, it's like it's like dancing with a 50 pound sack of potatoes. Okay. I understand. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so motokinesthetics is the actual ability. Okay. So let's say for instance, you're, you're covering a ooh, a vowel and, okay. and with a ooh, that's what I call the kissy face sound. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the kissy face is you have to pucker to make the ooh. You can't make the ooh if the lips are in any other position. Right. And that's why we teach them distinctive features, which we'll get to. But motokinesthetics is when when you try to get a person to produce a sound and they aren't doing it. Now, during your articulation testing, you're going to know those sounds that are very difficult to produce. You're going to know those sounds that are kind of difficult to pronounce. You're going to know those sounds that are you can probably get them. And, and those that are already there. Okay, so, you, so when you do your articulation test, you already know, you already in your mind have a hierarchy of those sounds that you know that are difficult and those that are not. So I always like to pursue the, the ones that are easier first, because once you get a person trained to model and mirror easy sounds, then, then you can go to more difficult sounds and then it's easy. Okay, but motor kinesthetics is actually 
manipulating like for instance i work with 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 one woman and we're working on the m and we're working on ma and mama and may and me okay okay and she has a little trouble getting into the posture of the m mm. okay. which is where the lips are together so when when we say okay we're going to cover the m now you got to put your lips together as in may or my and they might go k kai well so what we do is we'll always ask their permission may i move your lips in the way that will achieve the m sound we always ask permission for anything that we do motokinesthetically anything where there's tactile connection between the therapist and the individual so if we get their permission then it's just as simple as holding the lips together and saying let me see you go mm mm mm-hmm. mm and then if you've covered the vowels which i like to do first i like them to be very proficient with all the vowels then i can go well let's go mm oh or mm ah and we cover each one of those sounds nice and slow no hurry so that they achieve and that's one of the things about the approach with the teaching of talking there should be no frustration in the therapy. Now, I once wrote about that, and I got a letter from a, a, a woman who had apraxia and aphasia. She said, are you kidding? That's all, the, that's all I ever experienced in speech therapy was frustration and anger. Okay. Well, it was because she wasn't approached right. Okay. She wasn't approached in a simple manner. Okay. And given tasks that she could achieve. And if you know what you're doing, okay, and we teach people how to do this, if you know what you're doing, then it's there's hardly ever any frustration because you're always making it easy. That's another fundamental of apraxia therapy that I believe very strongly in that is interspersed throughout all the methodology in the teaching of talking. You have to make it easy. You have to make it simple and you have to make it fun. Easy, simple, and fun. Yeah. And no frustration. Yeah, and if it ain't that, forget it. I don't even want to show up up if it isn't fun. Hell, I've been doing this over 50 years now, and I love it every day. And if it wasn't fun, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be on this call right now. I wouldn't even be practicing speech pathology anymore. Right. Well, but if it's you're fun. having fun, your clients are having fun. So. Yeah. Very important. Okay. And then just to clarify, so if you were working with someone who did not have a caregiver or someone present and you were doing the moto kinesthetic approach, would you teach them to manipulate? Because your therapy is- Yes. Yeah. 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 So let me see. Okay. We're going to cover the M. Let me see. Take your two fingers now. And what I want you to do is I want you to I want you to put your two lips together and squeeze them with your thumb and your index finger. Like this. Now that's so that's not so hard. Right, right, right. It's like dancing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you make your steps simple. <laughs> now I know everyone tonight is listening live and they are actually able to see the video. Anyone watching on speechtherapypd.com in the future will be able to see the video. But if someone is on a podcast, they will not be able to do that. 
All right. So let's see. Now let's talk about the development of the phonemic system in children and how that applies to apraxia therapy with children and adults. Okay. So one of the things we know with children is that a lot of them start out with sounds like M's and B's, mama, papa, mama, papa, wawa. Many, many of the first words are the bilabials. Not all of them, but many of them are. And so I figure, heck, if, if children in the developmental sequence, phonemic development start with the bilabials, and the bilabials are the most visual. Exactly. And that's another thing about our approach. And when we decide on specific sounds to cover and to teach, we want to cover those sounds first that are more visual, that, that we can show the individual. And the area that's most visible when we teach speech sounds are the bilabials mm-hmm. right here. So if we want to teach a P, for instance, let me see. Can you put your lips together and go like this? Good. Okay, so we want to see that gesture first. We're not going to even ask them to to say a P or a B or anything. Can you do this? Okay, you know, or any other. So so with with children, a lot of the early sounds are produced frontally. They produce them frontally because when they're with mama, they see mama and Many of the words that she covers are those that are produced in the anterior part of the mouth. Now, that's not true in all cases, but even with the development, I'm, I'm not going to place a whole lot of emphasis there. The, you know, what's the relationship between the development of phonemes in children and the development of teaching phonemes to children? Because what's more important to me is, can they follow a model? Okay. Can they put their lips together? Can they put their lips together and blow their lips out? What's that's that's even more important to me. I'm thinking about that more than I am thinking about now. Let's see, what would Lois Bloom have said about this, or you know, or any of the other gurus of articulation and speech and language development with children. So what, what I'm more interested in is constantly culling to see what sounds I can facilitate first just by the gesture, the positioning of the tongue or the lips without voice. That's 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 the that's the gold in in the therapy that that I do. I want to know what they can do, what's easiest for them. And that's why the distinctive feature analysis. Heck, I I learned that in graduate school and I thought it was the most we had the Winnets. There was a guy by the name of Winnets and he wrote that book on, on distinctive feature analysis and I had just graduated with my undergraduate degree and, 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 and got into a, a, a training program. And we had to study winnets and distinctive features. And I figured, what the heck is this? Oh, I'll never need this. But <laughs> it, it's the whole fundamental of apraxia therapy. You have to know 
your speech sounds. You have to know the placement of the articulators for each specific speech sound. And not only do you need to know the placement of the articulators, you have to know the manner of what happens when you get those articulators into that posture. What do you do then? How do you stimulate a sibilant? How do you stimulate a stop? How do you stimulate a plosive? How do you stimulate a fricative or affricate? Okay, so so that's a whole different bale of wax. You know, you can get them into the position, but then you have to figure out what manner of articulation is easiest for this individual. And usually it's the stop. The stops, yeah. Or the nasal. Mm -hmm. Okay, usually, but not always, because everybody's different. But distinctive feature analysis for a person who's doing apraxia therapy, especially with someone who's severe to profound, you've got to know, you, you've got to know where everything goes <laughs> when, so go when you to go when to make a speech sound. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you're going to dive into distinctive feature analysis a little bit more deeply in the webinar. Uh -huh. And you will talk about that a little bit more at the end, but for everyone listening, Mark is going to have a webinar on apraxia therapy with the teaching of talking method coming up next month, and it will be available in the future on speechtherapypd.com. So I know we don't, we only have an hour to cover everything tonight. So we will revisit distinctive feature analysis again at the webinar. Okay. But the important thing is that you are developing a hierarchy of targets with the distinctive feature analysis. Yeah. And by stimulability too, you're, you're, you're finding out what their stimulability is. You know, both are very important because we know that the sounds that are more visible, are, you can teach more readily. Mm -hmm. So usually in my therapy with severe to profound people, I usually start with those speech sounds that are produced frontally. Now, let's say, for instance, I, I'm working with this guy, okay? And there are a number of words he wants to say that start with T. Okay. All right? Now, you can't see a T. Nope. You can't see it because it's nope. up on the, uh, on the incisal papillae. So what I had to do is I taught him how to produce the T in the dental position. Ah. Tom. Two. Table. And that way I could get it, but I couldn't get it because he couldn't see it. And even when I even when I tried to show him, he had major, major, major problems. So once I said, OK, I want to see your tongue and I want to see your tongue down here. But I, I just wanted to peek out just a little bit. <laughs> OK, and then and then we could do, let's say, pay, pee, tie, toe. And that's how we got the T. There's no rules in apraxia therapy. You know, just because it's called a lingua alveolar stop, it doesn't mean that that's the only way you can teach it. Okay. The bottom line is you teach it in whatever way you can get it, as they say in Texas. We're looking for function over perfection. <laughs> exactly. Now, but along those lines, once he once he got the T as a yeah. dental T yeah. and, and once he could produce it in those yeah. words, yeah. did you go back and try to teach the lingual? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now that you've got the tea, let's put the tongue back inside. And then I'd get a wood stick applicator, you know, like mm-hmm. the, 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 like a Q-tip with a wooden stick on it. Right. And I'd push that end, the wooden end, up into the insides of papillae and push pretty hard and say, okay, now we're going to produce these this way. And, and it was very easy. You did, he didn't have to relearn it because it was just a half an inch away. Right, right. Okay. Did you, with that particular client, did you use the tactile cueing before you went to the dental no, team? I couldn't because I couldn't because it was all, it was online. Okay, and, and when okay. it's online, that's one of the drawbacks of online therapy, even with motor kinesthetics. Uh, I always use motor kinesthetics with a caregiver. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have the caregiver do that. All right. So the caregiver is basically, you know, you've read about uh, surgeons who sit behind these big computers with a joystick and they do advanced surgeries from the other side of the United States. Okay. well, I do that with patients with apraxia when I have a caregiver that I'm training, that caregiver basically becomes me and does exactly what I would do because I direct them to do what I know is the next step or the, or the next step after that. So when, when we do any particular sound, if we do have to make a modification of the position, then as the person matures, and if the person, what's also remarkable is that if this particular person was a professional at one time, okay, okay. and had no speech and, and had profound apraxia. And what happened is as speech starts to develop, then the tongue kind of goes back to the natural way it always did before. You don't always have to have them relearn it because in many cases, the proper way of producing that sound was known and understood and used but only because of various limitations, sometimes we have to modify the position. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, tell us about the concept of successive approximation as it relates to intelligibility and how is successive approximation important to both the patient and the caregiver or the the helper? Okay. Uh, All right. So, you know, it's very simple what successive approximation is. It's it's a big $10 word. Uh, <laughs> so when I explain what successive approximation is to a caregiver or an individual with apraxia, I said, look, we're going to say this word and let's see what you can do with it. Okay. So we'll say a word and make it. And I say, hey, that's pretty good. You know, not all the sounds are correct, but hey, guess what? I can understand what word you're talking about. You know, like for instance, I'm seeing this lady. And she doesn't have the lingual velar K or G yet, okay? But she's got the vowels. So she likes to have coffee with her therapy and her son or her daughter who's, who's, who's assisting her. And, and now we're calling coffee A-E. You want some A-E? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so that's excessive approximation. It means it doesn't have to be exactly perfect. But you want to get them what what I call on the air. 
And what on the air means is you want to get them so that they can say something that can be understood by a member of the family or by someone they're close to. Okay. Now, not everybody is going to understand that AI is coffee, but the daughter will, the son will, the caregiver will. Okay. And so successive approximation is for the time being, whatever you get, if it's close, applaud it. Don't beat it with a stick. Like what happens with a lot of therapists. I've watched therapists who might do a, a single word like 20 or 30 times. And I have a rule, no more than three times. Oh, really? Oh, no more than three times. Heck, I, w- I, I don't want to repeat anything, you know, like more than three times. If I got to re- repeat something more than three times, I don't want to do it. So what, what we'll almost always do is try to get the closest approximation to the actual word to where it's intelligible. And then what we're gonna do is we're going to reinforce it, as Skinner used to say in his behavioral therapy, where he gets a reward for it. Hey, that's great. You know, you want some more? You want some more? Why? (laughs) You know, so, but, but they're always stimulating the correct articulation. But we want them on the air and we want them starting to talk, even if it's not always perfect. That's another one of the keys. That's what keeps everybody going is that they're successful with saying words, even if it's close. And we won't we won't work on a a word unless it's close. It has to be close. And. Successive approximation keeps everybody happy, keeps the patient happy because they're getting there. They don't have to be perfect right away. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be perfect if I was teaching you to dance right away. No, <laughs> no, we'd, we'd have to do it a number of times before you get it down. So true. So true. Okay. And here's another concept that you've talked about with the teaching of talking method is an older concept, ear training. And can you tell us why that is important specifically with patients with severe apraxia? Okay. Ear training was a concept that Charles Van Riper developed in 1955 at the University of Iowa, but I'm sure it was developed before him. He just got the credit. Okay, I'm sure that this goes back to Euripides or or any of those guys back in the Roman times or who who was it with uh, Eustophanes who had the guy talking with marbles to get rid of his stutter. Oh, yes. Yes. Anyway, I'm not sure which one, but I remember the story. (laughs) I'll have to get back to you on that. Okay, now what's the question again? I got up. I got up. Oh, oh, that's okay. Why ear training oh. is important to the teaching of okay. talking method and specifically with severe apraxia. Okay. So, you know, I remember I was writing a paper and I talked about the concept of bombardment, auditory bombardment. Mm-hmm. And bombardment is if I wanted to teach you, let's say, for instance, that this was a pen. Okay, I might say, well, Mary Beth, do you see this pen? This is a pilot pen. 
And the pen costs about 49 cents. And the pen has black ink. And I love this pen. Okay, now that concept is bombardment, which is a part of the concept of ear training is letting them hear the sound or letting them hear the word. Okay, now we know that to produce a word, they have to be in the right posture and position, but they also have to hear the word so that they can imitate it. So sometimes when I'm working with somebody, if I'm working on a particular word and I want them to say it and and I give them the model or the caregiver gives them the model and it's not quite there and I'm going, I know this person can get this and I know this person can say it better than that. So I might say to the caregiver, okay, this is what I want you to do, okay? I want you to lean over right into your loved one's ear and I want you to say that sound nice and clear. Ooh, you know? And usually if a person is like a foot away from the ear and and the loudness is appropriate, a lot of times they'll get it and they'll imitate it much better than three feet away. That is so interesting. You know, that's another reason when I train clinicians, one of the things that I see often is I see these little mammy-pammy clinicians and they have no voice. They have no voice. Now, if you're going to work with a patient with apraxia or even speech therapy, you have to have a voice that resonates and sets the skull into bone conduction. It's sort of like a, a castle, okay? And the castle has a moat around it. And in the moat are alligators and snakes and all kinds of weird things that'll kill you if you fall in, okay? So if, and then there's Rapunzel who's at the top of the castle, okay? But if you want her to hear you, You've got to really raise your voice so that that person hears it, okay? And by producing a voice that's really loud and clear, it's so much easier for a person to learn how to say words and say sounds when the sound is so clear and resonant. And the loudness is right, the clarity is right, because you want them speaking as clearly as you do. Exactly. Very interesting. I I have to say that I never went close to someone's ear like that, but I will keep that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) Probably uh, if we're not online in person, you know, probably similarly to the asking, you know, for the tactile permission, you want to have permission to go that close to exactly. or their personal space. Exactly. Um, all right. So being HIPAA compliant, of course, can you describe a case study that demonstrates the efficacy of the teaching of talking method? Well, this particular client I've been working with for probably about two months, and she has a profound, profound, profound apraxia. Okay. And I see them twice a week. On Tuesday, I see the daughter. On Thursday, I see the son. Okay. And I teach them 
whatever I'm doing with her. I'm, and we've already covered the vowels and now she can say the vowels with about 90% accuracy. So now what we're doing is we're adding bilabials with the vowel, such as my, such as may, such as her son has three syllables in her name, in his name, and she can now combine the syllables of that name. Now, she can't combine the, the consonants or the phonemes yet, but he, he knows. And we're teaching her how to say, okay, by saying, OA. Now, compliance is, with HIPAA, is being very respectful, having permission from the caregivers, involving the caregivers, and teaching them all the procedures. If there's anything more that you want to know about it. No, I was just saying, like, I wanted you to give us an example of just a typical client, but without giving any, you know, revealing information where we would know who that client is. Yeah. So, yeah. And, but typically, typically your clients have, um, are at least a few months, if not years post. Yes. uh, Post stroke or yes. yes. And we get, I usually ask for any documented assessments and history and physical. And I review those before the visit. I write a, a, a full summary of the initial consultation that I have with them. I outline what I tested, what the response was, what their stimulability was. Because I know that stimulability to me, a major determiner of prognosis. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. You know what? We are going to run out of time and not be able to answer all these questions. And tonight we have many questions. So I'm going to scroll to the top of this chat and make sure I have starting with the first one. Okay. The first person comment was, that's impressive with the CNA. The next question is, have these treatment approaches been studied more recently? The articles in your references are from the 1960s. Doesn't matter. A principle is a principle. Doesn't matter if it was 1960 or 2020, okay, in my estimation. Okay. All right. Next. Any tips for teaching de-voicing? My student has voiced... M B D not P T. So they have. The, how can you? How can you have voice, the voice? How can you know? How can you uh, uh, to to voice any bilabial or or? No, I think or, the question is they have the they have the voiced M B and D, but they cannot produce P or T. They produce it with voicing. And that if the person who wrote that question, if I am not interpreting that correctly, you can clarify. Well, I think they're thinking of like, let's say B, B, you're going to use your voice for the B, but you're not yeah. going to use it for the P. So when they make the um, make the sound like the word pop, they're going to say yeah. Bob. Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay. That, that's another feature that, that therapists need to realize that. It's not all that critical whether or not it's a voiced or a voiceless sound, just so long as it's being made. 
the the voicing will occur as the progress occurs. But in the beginning, you accept either the it doesn't really matter. And I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be too concerned about whether or not a, you can discriminate between an unvoiced sound and a voiced sound that's made in the same position and in the same manner. You follow what I'm saying? Like pool versus bull. OK, mm -hmm. there's 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 not much difference where, where you get meaning is in context. So I wouldn't worry about whether how much voicing it has or how much unvoicing it has. Okay. It's the context of the word that it's used within. And 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 it doesn't matter if if you're working on a, a P or a B in isolation, a P or a B doesn't really do much of anything if you're working on it in isolation. You you want to put it within a word. And if you put it within a word, you're not going to tell all that much difference between a voice sound and a voiceless sound. How do you confidently diagnose apraxia early in children who have it? Okay. You identify where the articulation errors are. That's number one. And then number two, you assess stimulability for those sounds. Can they make sounds with intensive visual and auditory stimulation? You know, there's no, you got to do this for a year or anything like that for apraxia. What apraxia is all about is looking at what's happening, looking at the process, seeing what happens when you ask a person to say a particular sound, documenting what they do when they make that sound, then going in your mind, okay, this is what they're doing for that sound. How should that sound? How should that sound be? Well, I know that that sounds about bilabial or lingual alveolar. So what you want to do then is you want to show them how to produce that sound easily. And if they can produce that sound easily, they don't have an apraxia. They just have an intensive articulation difficulty. I, I saw hundreds of kids when I first started therapy with severe articulation problems. And I had to, to correct those problems very much like what we do with apraxia. But we didn't call it apraxia then. We called it a severe articulation difficulty. So people are throwing around terms that one professor that I had one time called, used to call it wastebasket terms for different kinds of problems. And then apraxia is usually when they cannot make a sound, even with intensive stimulation. But usually they can if you approach it right. Almost, I think almost any person can learn almost any sound in speech if you approach it in an intelligent way and, and if you understand the principles of phonetics. Okay. Here's another question. How long do you typically work with a client? How much progress do you typically make say in six months or one year? So, so first, how long do you typically work with a client? As long as possible. As long as possible. And you know what? Most of them, most of them, uh, you know, I work with some a year, two years, three years, four years, and they're still making wonderful progress and they want more. That's good that they want more. 
And how would how much progress do you typically see, like let's say in six months? In six months? Well, I'm I'm working with this one gentleman, profound, profound, profound apraxia. And now he's speaking in two and three words, and it's coming up on the year. Okay. Great. Okay. Another question. What do you do with students with severely impaired cognitive issues with difficulty with comprehension? Is that auditory comprehension? Is that auditory comprehension? Uh, She did not specify, but. Okay. It's probably auditory comprehension because it's usually not visual comprehension. But if you're working with speech, you just have to go visual. You have to go visual. You have to go visual. Go visual. Okay. Let them see the sound. Let them do what you do. Model the sound and have them do exactly what you do. Now, you don't have to worry about comprehension if you're working on, are you work, you're working on apraxia or you're working on, on language in this uh, I, case? I think apraxia. Okay, well, if it's apraxia, then you, you approach it like you would any other person with apraxia, okay? You have to go visual. You have to get them to do what you do. You have to show them. You can't, you can't explain it. You know, a lot of therapists say, well, you got to do this. Now, just listen to me as I describe to you how you should say this sentence. No, 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 no. Do what I do right now. <laughs> okay. Can you do that? Okay. Now, they, they'll be able to comprehend you if you make it simple enough. But don't try explaining it to them because they'll be or if they're bored to death, they won't be listening either. OK, you got to make it fun. You got you to have them do what you show them to do and, and you got to have a good time at doing it. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We did mention that you were going to be coming back for a webinar, which will be two four hour courses. Can you talk a little bit more about what you'll be able to get into during that webinar? Yes. All, all the basic principles, reviewing diagnosis, for instance, the testing, the stimulability testing, how to isolate the sounds that a person can do well from not well. Okay. So as we talked about before, you develop a hierarchy based on the articulation test, where to start. The articulation test will tell you right away what you need to do. We'll show you right away where to start. Then then we talk about the importance of of the posture and and teaching a person how to kind of of like a, a very thorough deep dive into the principles of mirroring and modeling of vowel production. Once you get a vowel, where do you go next? How do you choose the, the phonemes to put next to the vowel? Do you put a, a phoneme before the vowel when you stimulate it, or do you put a phoneme after the vowel when you stimulate it? So you'll, you'll learn how to think about simplicity and how to get a person to do what you're modeling for them and teaching them how to mirror you so that you both work in synchrony 
And the same thing, we go very deeply into the caregiver and training the caregiver and what that's like during a typical therapy session. Well, we sure look forward to that on speechtherapypd.com. You'll have a lot of videos to share and we'll be able to see these principles in action. So we really are looking forward to that next month. So thank you so much for talking with us tonight. This was so wonderful to share this information and to hear your perspective and your experience, which is vast with clients with apraxia. So thank you for being here. And we look forward to seeing you soon. And as a reminder for this live episode to get live CEUs, you must log into your speechtherapypd.com account and complete the entire course content by the end of the day today. So Mark, thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we sign off? Uh, Apraxia, if if you're doing work with anyone with aphasia, it's almost a prerequisite to understand and know apraxia therapy and be familiar with it so that it's not scary. Because a lot of the therapies that are out there and, and you know i've been doing therapy all, all this time there were times when when i had to learn a certain kind of therapy and i was really scared okay and i had to start at the very 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 beginning of it but if you're involved with adult neuro or pediatric neuro and you've got people who are not talking You want to become a real expert in motor speech difficulties and apraxia because the only way you're going to get them talking is by those principles. Now, unfortunately, the field is going into the uh, adaptive communication devices, and that's unfortunate. But those who truly want to work with people and help them speak, they're still some around who really want to do that. And and if you really want to do that, then learning the basic principles of apraxia is, is one of the most remarkable and satisfying things that you can do. And especially watching people start to talk where they couldn't before and everybody gave up on them. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you for being with us tonight. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.